So I believe one of the <clears throat> reasons why people are afraid to talk about eschatology and talk with other people about eschatology is because people think it's divisive. And the reason why it be can become divisive is because we come to Scripture thinking we come to it with a blank slate, that we have no operating assumptions, no presuppositions, no lens at the way we read Scripture. But we all come to Scripture with a certain lens that we read it. You have a historic premillennialism, postmillennialism, amillennialism. In these positions, postmillennialism, you, you have, in these positions, you, you're reading Scripture through a certain interpretation, through a certain hermeneutic. Amill is just the same way. And by the way, I'm going to abbreviate them. Amill, premill, postmill, because I'm not, I don't want to keep saying millennial, millennium, because it's, it's, it's hard to say after so many times. It's like saying if the woodchuck chuck and the woodchuck chuck, and I'm going to mess it up. It's hard enough to say on its own, so I'm going to say amill. So when I say amill, it's, what is it? Post mill. Yes, pre mill, historic pre mill. You get the point. So, all mill, that, that being said, what I'm going to do is I'm, I'm going to build a, build a framework of all millennialism. How, how, what kind of lens do I see scripture through and how it comes to the certain conclusions? Me being a good reformed guy, I've got five points that's in your handout. That's going to build a foundation, points one through four are going to build a foundation, kind of this framework of how all mill sees eschatology. And then point five is the one that everybody wants to hear about, Revelation 20. So all mill, if you think pre-mill, what does pre-mill mean? When does Jesus come? He comes before the millennium, post-mill, after the millennium. All mill with the A, you think no millennium. But it's not completely accurate. Amil doesn't believe in a literal 1,000-year millennium, an earthly, a future earthly millennium. Amil believes that we're in the millennium now, that Jesus reigns now and we're in the millennium now. And a thousand years is not a literal thousand years, but it's figurative. It, it means a completeness of time from Christ's first advent when he came to earth and then his, his return. That being said, I'm going to go ahead and start on number one which is let the New Testament interpret the Old Testament. The all-mill position is very serious about this. Old, the Old Testament prophets, when they prophesied, when they look forward to the New Testament, they didn't have a full picture. They're looking forward, trying to figure out what they're, what they're prophesying about, but they didn't have a complete picture. We're on this side of the cross, and we now look back and we see a better picture. It's as if the Old Testament prophets are sitting in a room and it's dark in there and they can, they can kind of just figure out the shapes of the furniture. There's a little bit of light. They're seeing the shadows. I'm using that intentionally. They're seeing the shadows of this furniture and trying to figure it out. We're on this side. Jesus Christ has come and he has turned that light up. Jesus Christ has come out of the types and the shadows of the Old Testament into the New Testament and now we get a bunch more better picture. And so all mill position says, let the New Testament interpret the Old Testament. 1 Peter 1, 10 through 12 says, As to the salvation, the prophets who prophesied of the grace that would come to you made careful searches and inquiries, seeking to know what person or time the Spirit of Christ within them 
was indicating as he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the glories to follow. It was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves but you and these things which now have been announced to you through those who preach the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. All mill have been accused of spiritualizing everything. And this goes all the way back to Augustine. Well, Augustine systematized all mill system and then in the city of God, and so now we spiritualize everything. So all mill, what's their control? How do, how do they stop spiritualizing things? They spiritualize Israel. They spiritualize um, a lot of these Old Testament prophecies. Well, our external control is the New Testament. If the Apostle Paul in Ephesians 2 takes the temple and spiritualizes it and talks about uh, us being a dwelling place which God dwells in, then we spiritualize it because he spiritualizes it. If in Luke, um, when he talks about, when, when he, he quotes back to Hosea and he's talking about uh, Jesus coming out of Egypt, my son coming out of Egypt, he's quoting back to Hosea 11. Hosea is talking about national Israel and Hosea. But then Luke turns around and talks, point, uh, then uh, turns it over to Jesus and says it's Jesus. He's applying it to Jesus. So Al Mill says we're not spiritualizing everything. When, when a New Testament author turns something, reinterprets it, then that's the final arbitrator, or arbiter, arbiter of the Old Testament. Examples where New Testament authors interpret Old Testament passages. You have, let me find the ones that I have printed out for you. Hosea 11.1. 1. When Israel was a youth, I loved him. And out of Egypt, I called my son. It was actually Matthew. Matthew 2.15 is when he does that. Matthew 2.15, he says, He remained there until the death of Herod. This is to fulfill what had been spoken by the Lord through the prophet. Out of Egypt, I called my son. You have Isaiah 53, 7-8. You have the suffering servant. See, Israel at that time wouldn't have imagined a suffering servant as being the Messiah. So they see Isaiah 53 as talking about national Israel. But then Philip in Acts 8.30, he sees the eunuch who's reading, and he goes up to him, and he then interprets it and said, this is Jesus. This is talking about Jesus Christ. So they're reinterpreting. The, the, we let the New Testament interpret the Old Testament. When Jesus was walking when he joined Cleopas and the other disciple on the road to Emmaus, he opened up the scripture to them. He said that everything in the Old Testament concerning himself is pointing to him. He says, in beginning with, the Moses, with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them all the scriptures, the things concerning himself. These things that they're prophesying, these types and these shadows, they're all pointing to me. And that's what Mill says, is what the, New what the New Testament does when it takes a passage from the Old Testament reinterprets it to mean something else, we take the New Testament as the final say in what it means. We don't go back to the Old Testament. We don't go, go back here and try to look into the New Testament and try to interpret the New Testament from what we're seeing in the Old Testament. We look on the New Testament side, on this side, when the room's lit up, and we look back to now what did those prophets mean. So when you go to Revelation, which is steeped in Old Testament prophecy and Old Testament symbols, when you see Revelation 21, 22, and all Mill says that points back to Ezekiel 40 through 48. When you look at Revelation 19, it points back to Ezekiel 39 when it's talking about judgment. That's the way, that's the, that's the lens at which all Mill interprets. Point two. And this one's a, this one's, tends to be more of a decisive, uh, divisive one. There are not two separate plans of redemption. 
There's not a plan for national Israel and not a plan for Gentiles. God's story of redemption has always been for Gentiles and Jews, for all nations, all races. When Paul and Barnabas uh, went up to the Jerusalem Council in Acts 15, they're having this issue with the Judaizers. Should Gentile believers now become circumcised? Should we get them circumcised? And there's all these issues because Jews, they're trying to figure this out. They're trying to figure out this whole new church thing now that Jesus has gone, now that Jesus has been here. So Acts 15, 6 through 9. The apostles and the elders came together to look into this matter. After there had been much debate, Peter stood up and said to them, Brethren, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you that by my mouth the Gentiles would hear the word of the gospel and believe. And God, who knows the heart, testified to them, giving them the Holy Spirit, just as he also did to us. And he made no distinction between us and them, cleansing their hearts by faith. Then James speaks. He's quoting back to Amos 9, 11, and 12, which is a prophecy he's taken about Israel and now applying it to Gentiles and Jews. Acts 15, 15, uh, 15 through 18. With this, the words of the prophets agree, just as it is written, after these things I will return, I will rebuild the tabernacle of David, which has fallen, and I will rebuild its ruins, and I will restore it, so that the rest of mankind may see the Lord and all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord, who makes these things known from long ago. Then Paul, he's talking about in Galatians 3, 28 through 29, he says, there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free man, there is neither male nor female, for you all are one in Christ Jesus, and if you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's descendants, heirs according to promise. He does the same thing, Romans 4.13. He says, For the promise to Abraham or to his descendants that he would be heir of the world, it's no longer this, uh, tied to a land of, uh, of Canaan. He's, he now expands it. Heir of the world was not through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. Later on, Galatians 6.16. And those who will walk by this rule, peace and mercy be upon them and upon the Israel of God. He's spiritualizing Israel here. He's not talking about national Israel. He's talking about Jews and Gentiles are now true, the true Israel. 1 Peter 2.9 But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession so that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Even Peter is spiritualizing this, a holy nation. He's not talking about a geopolitical nation in a certain location. He's saying, you're now a holy nation. Gentiles, Jews, you're a royal priesthood, a holy nation. Hebrews 12, 22. But you have come to Mount Zion, and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to myriads of angels. He's saying the, in Hebrews, the author is saying, the promise is fulfilled in the church. The New Testament looks back to these promises, and it says, now that we look back, these are fulfilled in Jesus Christ and the church. I say that Jesus is the true Israel. When he asked Jews about Isaiah 52, 53, they say it refers to national Israel. But on this side of the cross, we know that's referring to Jesus. Luke 1, 54 he has given, this is another, inst now, we're, now we're looking at verses, sorry, we're looking at verses where now you see uh, Israel being applied to Jesus. So you have Luke 154. He has given help to Israel, his servant, 
in remembrance of his mercy, Israel his servant. But then Luke, the author of Acts as well, he says in Acts 3.13, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of our fathers, has glorified his servant, Jesus, the one whom you delivered and disowned in the presence of Pilate when he had decided to release him. National Israel was a servant. Now Jesus Christ is the servant. Christ is the true temple. There's no longer a need for a physical, literal temple. Christ is the temple. Matthew 12, 6. But I say to you that something greater than the temple is here. John 2, 19. This is why I printed all these verses out, by the way, because you're not going to be able to flip around all these verses. This makes it a little bit easier. John 2, 19. Jesus answered them, Destroy this temple, and in three days I'll raise it up. And then John 22, just a little bit later. So when he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he said this, and they believed the scripture and the word which Jesus had spoken, referring to his reference to the body as a temple. In Old Testament times, it was said God's glory filled the temple, but now we're the temple. Exodus 40, 34, Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. But then Paul takes that, 2 Corinthians 6, 16, Or what agreement has a temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the living God. Just as God said, I will dwell in them and walk among them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. When Jesus was talking with the Samaritan woman, he talked about him being the living water. He's referring back to Ezekiel. When you hear about the temple and this water flowing from the temple and that it heals, he's alluding back to Ezekiel and he says, I'm the living water. No water from a temple will heal you anymore. I'm the living water. So the Ah Mill says, let the New Testament interpret the Old Testament. That's one way that our lens works when we read scripture. Then number two is that when they're referring to Israel in the Old Testament, you see they're, they're looking forward to some promises, but then you see the New Testament then reinterpreting that to mean all nations. So there's not two separate plans of redemption, national Israel and Gentiles. These are two main points that the all-mill position uh, affirms. Then we get to point three. Jesus reigns now. Jesus reigns now, and we're in the millennium now. That's another big one for the all-mill position. It's, there's a Latin term, munis triplex, that Jesus is prophet, priest, and king. Jesus holds the office of king now, not in some future earthly millennium. John 18, 36. Jesus answered, My kingdom is not of this world, if my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews. But my kingdom is not from the world. He currently reigns in the hearts of people as well. Jeremiah 31, 33. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. It doesn't explicitly say, explicitly say in the Old Testament or the New Testament what the kingdom of God is. But I think a good, simple description of it is the kingdom of God is wherever the word of God is preached. If you have a church with five people at attend and you one pastor who opens the Bible and he's preaching the word, there's the kingdom of God. It's wherever the word of God is preached and where communion and baptism occur as well. 
He also reigns in heaven over the host of the redeemed. Revelation 24. This is a fun one we're going to begin to. It talks about those in thrones. In Revelation, thrones used 47 times, and only three times it refers to non-heavenly. So Revelation 24, the Amil takes as Paul having a vision, or sorry, John having a, a vision of heavenly thrones and saints reigning. Jesus is king now, and he's, he has been ever since his ascension. Matthew 28, 18. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Do you remember uh, when, when they went into, whose house was Jason's house, there was a bunch of commotion because Paul and Silas were preaching the gospel. And in Acts 17.7, it says, Jason had received them, and they are all acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king, Jesus. The Romans, they weren't, they weren't necessarily upset about Jesus coming and doing whatever, whatever religious stuff he wants to do. What they were afraid of is, is he a king? We don't want them conquering our, we don't want him overtaking us. And so they were more concerned about the political power. And the Jews saw the same thing. They thought the Messiah was going to come and take this physical kingdom over. They were going to overrun the Romans. But he didn't come to do that. He set up the kingdom of God. It's a spiritual kingdom now. Paul tells Gentiles they have been transferred into Christ's kingdom. Colossians 1.13. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son. The throne of David, Jesus fulfilled the Davidic covenant, which is in, found in 2 Samuel 7, 12 through 17. He ascended to heaven. He's sitting at the right hand of God the Father. God's throne is equated with David's throne, or David's throne is equated with God's throne. You have 1 Chronicles 28, 5. And of all my sons, for the Lord has given me many sons, he has chosen Solomon my son, to sit on the throne of the kingdom of the Lord over Israel. 1 Chronicles 29:23. Then Solomon sat on the throne of the Lord as king in place of David his father, and he prospered, and all Israel obeyed him. You can go to Peter's sermon at Pentecost. I'm skipping over a couple verses there because there's so many. Uh, Peter's sermon at Pentecost. I'm going to go ahead and read this. It's, it's Acts. I don't, have, I don't think I have it in the handout. It's Acts 2:29 through 36. If you can get there fast, it's Acts 2.29 through 36. Peter says, Acts 2.29 through 36. Peter says, Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David, that he both died and was buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. Being therefore a prophet, and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses, being therefore exalted at the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand, until I make your enemies your footstool. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God had made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Jesus Christ is king now. He reigns now, and it's through the kingdom of God. Many scholars tie Daniel 7, 13 through 14 as a prophecy to Christ's ascension. 
In Acts 1-9, we read that. And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. Daniel 7, 13, 14 talks about uh, that, uh, like a son of man, he came to the Ancient of Days, and he was presented before him. It's this idea of somebody going up to the Ancient of Days, up to heaven. And so they say, Acts 1, 9, the ascension of Christ, alludes back to Daniel 7, 13. So the kingdom of God is a present reality, but it's not fully consummated. It's not fully realized yet. We see a glimpse of it, but not completely. It's that if you ever heard of the term already, not yet, kind of that tension. If you look at the graph on the first page of your handout, you see the all-mill chart. And to the left, you see, you see the millennium now. You see the millennium now, and then you see the eternal state. So the already is we're in the millennium now, the not yet is the eternal state. And when I get to point four, this is going to make more sense. So the already, not yet. All of Israel's prophets, priests, and kings foreshadowed Jesus. The Jews thought the Messiah would establish a physical, literal kingdom. But when Jesus came, they thought he would conquer Rome. But Rome was just a symptom of the greater problem. The greater problem that Jesus needed to conquer was sin and death. It started all the way from the beginning. It's the entire plan of redemption. The all-male position takes the historic redemptive story seriously. God needed to redeem a people, all nations, all tribes, not just a particular one. Christ brought a spiritual kingdom. The kingdom of God is present where Christ is present, wherever the gospel is being preached. That's the kingdom of God. Peter says that Christ is ruling and reigning now. 1 Peter 3.22 Who has gone, speaking of Jesus, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him? 1 Corinthians 15.23-24 But each in his own order. Christ the firstfruits, then it is coming those who belong to Christ. Then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom of God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power. Paul's saying he's delivering the kingdom of God over to God the Father because he is ruling and he's reigning now, and now he's handing it over. That's point three. So point three, or point one, let the New Testament interpret the Old Testament. Most, most eschatological viewpoints would agree at, to some point to let the New Testament interpret the Old Testament. Point two, there are not two separate plans of redemption. I think there's only one that would actually be a little more divisive on that one. But I'm not going to try to represent the other views because I don't want to represent them wrong. So, uh, Let's see. Point, and then point three, which was Jesus reigns now. The moon is triplex. Jesus is king now. The millennium is now. And then point four, I'm trying, to, I'm trying to go quick over here to Revelation 20. Point four, the New Testament teaches a two-age model. So on this chart, you have two ages. You have this age, the age to come, the already, the not yet. When you see the New Testament, when you look through the lens of this two-age model, which is spoken of all through the New Testament, it makes a big difference on how you, how you, where you come to your conclusions on eschatology. 
Because with the two-age model, even uh, historic pre-mill respected scholar George Ladd says this becomes an issue for an earthly millennium. There's this age, and then there's this age to come. When, when the New Testament talks about this age, it always associates it with temporal things. Matthew 12, 32. Whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man, it shall be forgiven him. But whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit, it shall not be for, forgiven him, either in this age or in the age to come. This age, temporal. Age to come, eternal. There's only two ages. Where this becomes difficult for an earthly millennium is this idea of where do you fit in this other age, this millennial age. Matthew 24, 3. As he was sitting on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately, saying, Tell us when all these things will happen, and what will be the sign of your coming, and of the end of the age. The end of this age. Matthew 28, 20. Teaching them to observe all that I commanded you, and lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. So it says, already, not yet, this age, the age to come. When it refers to the age to come, it talks about eternal things. You have this age, temporal, age to come, eternal. So Mark 10.30, but that he will receive a hundred times as much now in the present age, houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children, that's this age, see the temporal things, along with persecutions, the church being persecuted now. And in the age to come, eternal life. So the age to come, eternal. This age, temporal. Age to come, eternal. It's called the two-age model. Luke 18.30 Who will not receive many times as much at, the, at this time and in the age to come, eternal life. It makes... When you, uh, Matthew 25 through 30, 31 through 46, uh, when you, I, I didn't have it out there, it's a long passage. When you, when you look at the passage, there's no indication of a thousand year period manifesting itself. The idea of a thousand year literal reign only comes from Revelation 20 within the New Testament. But when you look at this two age model, this age, this age to come, you see no indications of an earthly millennium, a thousand year period. 1 Corinthians 15, 23 through 24, which I just, I think I read that a little bit ago, but I'll read it again. But uh, 1 Corinthians 15, 23 through 24 says, But each in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, after that those who are Christ said is coming, then comes the end, when he hands over the kingdom to God the Father, when he has abolished all rule and authority and power. In the phrase, then comes the end, verse 24, the Greek word for then is ida. A word used to suggest a logical sequence between two events with no indication contextually that a long lapse of time separates the two. Ida is used in Mark 4, 17, Mark 4, 28, Luke 8, 12. It mean, it's, there's no, there, it's a logical sequence with, sequence with no time lapse. Therefore, it's unreasonable to assign it in the same meaning in 1 Corinthians 15, 24. The context here is the resurrection. Christ was resurrected as the first fruits. His people will be resurrected at the second coming that is next in sequence without a long interval of time. And then comes the end, the end of time. The end of everything as far as this present age is concerned, the temporal. There's no, I do not see any thousand years here. It's not tied here that I can see. So when the end actually comes, Jesus hands the kingdom back over to the Father. Why? 
because he had already reigned over it during the church age or the gospel age. This can also be seen as the church age, the gospel age. You can hear that uh, Amil lots of times call it the gospel age, the church age. Redemptive history is then consummated, and by logical inference, the new earth and the new heavens come next. Second, Thess- Second Thessalonians 1, 6 through 10 says, I'm going to get some water here. For after all, it is only just, just for God to repay with affliction those who afflict you and to give relief to you who are afflicted and to us as well when the Lord Jesus will be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, dealing out retribution to those who do not know God and to those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. These will pay the penalty of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power when he comes to be glorified in his saints on that day and to be marveled at among all who have believed. For our testimony to you was believed. Where's the thousand years? Since other groups besides all millennia say that the wicked are judged at the end of the millennium, where can the thousand years be located in the text? And why are the wicked being judged at the time of the second coming itself? The thousand years simply aren't present, but seemingly should be if an earthly millennium is real, if it's true. How is it possible that any single wicked person could escape this judgment and subsequent casting into hell described here, events that occur according to the text, immediately after the second coming instead of a thousand years later? Clearly taught in scripture, when Christ comes back, three things happen. The bodily resurrection, judgment, and cosmic renewal when Christ comes back. The body, bodily resurrection, re, resurrection, you can read 1 Corinthians 15, 35 through 57. Uh, first Thess, I've, I've, got, I've got all the references there. 1 Thessalonians 4, 13 through 18. So these events all occur. And when you look at a two-age model, this age, the age to come, it makes sense. It's that framework. It, uh, it's that framework that the Amil looks, the lens that he has, the presupposition that he has when he comes to, the, to an Amil position. 2 Peter 3.38, that's the cosmic renewal. You can see all the events here. I'm going to read it really quick. I didn't print it out for you guys because it's a little bit longer. But it's 2 Peter 3, 3 through 8. Know this first of all, that in the last days mockers will come with their mocking, following after their own lust, and saying, where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all continues just as it was from the beginning of creation. For when they maintain this, it escapes their notice that by the word of God, the heavens existed long ago and the earth was formed out of water and by, and by water, through which the world at that time was destroyed, being flooded with water. But by his word, the present heavens and earth are being reserved for fire, kept for the day of judgment and destruction of ungodly men. But do not let this one fact escape your notice, beloved, that with the Lord one day is like a thousand years and a thousand years like one day. A thousand years is using, being used figuratively. A premillennium says that some people are judged and not all of them. The only passage that apparently teaches it is Revelation 20. But the problem, and we're going to get to Revelation 20, so I'm going to, I'm going to leave that. I'm not going to talk about Revelation 20 until we get there again. So the foundation. Let the New Testament interpret the Old Testament. The Old Testament to have a complete picture. They're looking forward. The New Testament, now we have more of a complete picture. We're interpreting what the Old Testament means by the New Testament. And then point two. There are not two separate plans of redemption. There's not a national Israel future plan and a Gentile separate plan. They're all one. We're all the church. 
Jews and Gentiles. And then point three, Jesus reigns now. He's prophet, priest, and king. The kingdom of God is now. The millennium is occurring now. It's not a literal thousand years. And then point four, the New Testament teaches a two-age model. This age, the age to come. And now, we're getting to Revelation 20. I know this feels like uh, you're drinking from a fire hose here. There's a lot of verses, and Greg gave me since Tuesday night to figure out what I was going to talk about. <laughs> so blame Greg if you leave here and you have no idea what I just said. <laughs> By the way, Greg and I poke fun at each other a lot, so next week when we're debating, we'll probably be poking fun at each other and... Benji as well. He's our token post-mill guy. All right. So point five. Now the meat and the potatoes here. Revelation 20, 1 through 6, does not refer to a future literal millennium. If you want to go ahead and get your Bibles and turn to Revelation 20. Now, Revelation 20 is apocalyptic. The genre is apocalyptic. It's steeped in symbols. It's a book of symbols in motion. When I grew up, I used to think the Revelation, the only way to read it was in a chronological order, a historical chronological order. But now, I believe in a method of interpretation of Revelation called progressive parallelism is actually the way that it should be read. Progressive parallelism is a method of interpretation. Think of when you're watching like a, a football game and you have, when you're watching a game from your TV, you see one event, you see one game. What you don't see is the cameras, all the different camera, cameras that are panning, you're going from one camera to the next to the next and you're getting a different angle of the game, but you're seeing the same event. Progressive parallelism says that John's visions, as you, as you go through Revelation, they're forming cohesive units, and as you get further on, he then goes back to visions earlier. So you could have a vision about Earth at one point, and then later on, he comes back to it. It's from a different angle. So he's looking at the same events from different camera angles. And so that method of interpretation breaks the book of Revelation into seven sections. Section 1 is chapters 1 through 3, section 2, 4 through 7, uh, chapters 4 through 7, section 3, section 4. It, it breaks it up into seven sections or uh, camera angles, if you will. They run parallel. These passages run parallel to each other, but they're slowly progressing towards the end, Revelation 21, 22. That's why it's called progressive parallelism. They're, they're on different train tracks. They're going to the same place, though. So now we get to Revelation 21 through 6. Oh, man, I'm running out of time here. Jeez. I'm going to have to end this in the debate. Okay, Revelation 20. Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding in his hand the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain, and he seized the dragon, that ancient serpent, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years, and threw him into the pit, and shut it, and sealed it over him, so that he might not deceive the nations any longer, until the thousand years were ended. After that, he must be released for a little while. 
Then I saw thrones, and seated on them were those to whom the authority to judge was committed. Also I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus and for the word of God, and those who had worshipped the beast, who had not worshipped the beast or its image, and not received its mark on their foreheads or their hands. They came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection. Over such, the second death has no power, but they will be priests of God and of Christ, and they will reign with him for a thousand years. What makes the big difference between premillennial and amill is that premill sees Revelation 19, they see Revelation 20 is following his chronologically from Revelation 19. That makes the difference. If you have a pre-mill lens as you view it, and you say Revelation 20 follows chronologically from Revelation 19, it makes complete sense that that would be talking about an earthly millennium. But Amil says, no, it doesn't follow. It actually, John comes back to a vision when he says, then I saw, which means he's now seeing another vision. Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven. He's actually coming back to the church age. So an all mill says, Revelation 20, verses 1 through 6, is talking about the current church age. It's coming back to the gospel era. And this is why. Revelation 19 is eternal judgment. Then I saw an angel standing in the sun, and with a loud voice he called to the birds that fly directly overhead. This is starting in verse 17. I'm kind of rushing here because I'm running out of time. <laughs> come come gather, gather for the great supper of God to eat the flesh of kings, the flesh of captains, the flesh of mighty men, the flesh of horses and their riders, and the flesh of all men, both free and slave, both small and great. And what happens? And I saw the beasts and the kings of the earth with their armies gathered to make war against him who was sitting on the horse and against the army. And the beast was captured, and with it the false prophet, who in its presence, presence had done the signs of which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast and those who worship its image. These two were thrown alive into the lake of fire, which means eternal punishment, as we'll see in Revelation 20, verse 14, which I probably won't get to. And the rest were slain by the sword that came from the mouth of him who was sitting on the horse, and all the birds were gorged with their flesh. This is alluding back to Ezekiel chapter 39, which is talking about eternal judgment. If Revelation 20 chronologically follows from Revelation 19, then what's the point of binding Satan to deceive nations if the prophet, the beast, have been eternally condemned, and all non-believers, enemies of Christ, are getting their flesh gorged on by birds. Revelation 19 is talking about eternal judgment, eternal punishment. So in Revelation 21, you get to where it's talking about uh, the nations gathering together, Magog and Gog and uh, the defeat of Satan in Revelation 27. How did those nations come back? How did they reappear when they were destroyed in Revelation 19? That's the question that the millennial, the pre-mill has to answer. If you believe that Revelation 20, verses 1 through 6, is an earthly millennium, you have to answer for a second fall. Because Revelation 19 is eternal judgment. That is the big crux of the disagreement on Revelation 20. Then I saw coming down from heaven, holding in his hand the key to the bottomless pit, in his hand the key to the bottomless pit, and a great chain, and he seized the dragon. What would be the point of seizing him from deceiving the nations if in Revelation 19 all the enemies of Christ were destroyed anyways? I've heard before that, well, people, people go ahead and they, they have babies on the millennium, on the earthly millennium, and then those are eventually become the nations that deceive 
that revolt against Christ after he's reigned for a thousand years on the earth, and then there's the fall there. But all of the enemies of Christ have been killed, Revelation 19. Jesus tells us when we rise from the dead with glorified bodies, we can't procreate. There's no marriage. So where do these nations come to at the end of Revelation 20? The ones that go to deceive. That's where the issue, that's where the crux of it is. So Amil says that Revelation 19, or Revelation 20, does not follow chronologically. It's going back to the church age, this age, the age we're in now. I'm out of time. I hit 40 minutes. <laughs> so I didn't get to go through all 20. The first resurrection, the second resurrection, I don't know. How much time? Do we have a few more minutes? Yeah. <laughs> we have a few more minutes? All right. Have I made enough people mad yet? Okay. <laughs> the millennium must come before the second coming and the last battle for several reasons. Although true Satan has always been out to deceive the nations, Revelations 12.9. I'm going to skip around here a little bit and just read. So you don't have to skip around with me. Uh, you might want to write the verses down, though. So Revelation 12.9 says... And the great dragon was thrown down. That, notice that he's using the same fourfold description of Satan in Revelation 12. Progressive parallelism. Things are running parallel towards an ending. Revelation 12 is a perfect parallelism of Revelation 20. Because you see the fourfold description of Satan. And the great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. In this vision, but in Revelation 20, there's a specific objective, which is seen in Revelation 28, or 20, verse 8, which is to gather all the armies for the great battle of the Lord. This war refers to the great war of the Lord, where Satan gathers all his armies to fight. You look, if you look back to Revelation 16, verses 13 through 16, you see the same thing. It goes back. It's a parallel. These armies that deceive earth through signs which you can see in chapter 13, verse 14. In light of this, Satan was bound not to cause a worldwide conspiracy to fight against the church in a final battle. Another reason, number two, which is actually what I said, the precaution of binding Satan would be unnecessary if it followed Revelation 19's battle. In that battle, all men were destroyed, not just kings, but the enemies of Christ's troops. Revelation 19, 18. And number three, there is a verbal connection between Revelation 12 and Revelation 20's vision. You've got the full, fourfold description of Satan. There are three visions that all show the same event, the same camera lens. In chapter 12, you have the two witnesses. Or chapter 11, you have the two witnesses. Chapter 12, the heavenly woman and the dragon. Chapter 20, the binding of the dragon. These are three parallel sections explaining the same thing. Okay. What does the binding of Satan mean? It means Satan cannot deceive like he did in the Old Testament. The Old Testament, most of the Gentile nations were deceived, were, you could say, under the rule of Satan, whereas nation of Israel had the promises. That's this idea of binding. And I'm running out of time, so I have to stop now because I'm at 44 minutes. So...